Hey gang, this is Hal Aaron, and welcome to my podcast, Tales of the Road Warriors. Uh, today's Road Warrior is Earl Oaken, and uh, it all started when Earl wrote an open letter to the Song Talk mailing list. It was called Tribute to Linda McCartney, and it was a heartfelt tribute to Linda, who had recently died of cancer. Later, when I put out a request for essays for my new upcoming website, Little Hank's Guide for Songwriters, Earl must have seen it because he submitted this letter to me and he gave me permission to reprint it in the Tales of the Road Warriors section. At the time, this website was only one of a handful of early online resources for songwriters and musicians. This was the 1990s, like the mid-1990s, 94, 95, something like that. So in January of 2019, when I first started creating the Tales of the Road Warriors podcast, uh, which gets its name from that section of Little Hank's Guide, I went in my Wayback Machine to read some of the essays, and I came across Earl's tribute to Linda. And it got me to thinking, you know, hmm, why don't I see if he's still around? And uh, if he's, you know, if he's alive and kicking, I'll invite him to be a guest on my podcast. So I Googled Earl and found out that not only is he still around, he's 72, fit as a fiddle, still doing concerts, and he even has a podcast, his own podcast. It's called Earl Oaken's Amazing Gramophone Show. And on each episode of his uh, podcast, he introduces uh, six selections called from various operas, digitized from his collection of rare cylinders and Ace Tate recordings. And then each show ends with an Earl Oaken original. It's, it's quite Quite lovely, actually. So, as they say, without further ado, let's talk to Earl. Here we go. Well, before I go into that, I have to wish you a happy, you and Franz a happy birthday. I yes, it'll be uh, in about oh, 50, well, about two weeks' time. Yeah, was it the 31st, January 31st? How can I be, yes, how can I be 72? I was 35. I distinctly remember being there. I had a neck, and uh, now I'm 72. I, don't know. I know what happened. I know exactly what happened. Yeah. You blinked. I think that's what it is, yeah. But I'm very lucky. You know, I, I see people who are younger than me, all sorts of health problems, and I really don't have any, apart from the occasional cold. I, I run for buses. The only serious problem I had 20 years ago when I had a trapped nerve in my back, that seems to have just completely disappeared because I was causing it myself by going around the world with a 70-pound case on one shoulder. Not a good idea. And now I use cases with wheels. So that's all right. And I had all my major illnesses before I was 10. I had meningitis and polio and, and scarlet fever, you name it. Everything except bubonic plague and, and pregnancy. But uh, in addition to, to scarlet fever and meningitis, which was the most serious one, I was only six weeks old, I don't remember. I was one of the first people in the world to have a wonder drug that was discovered oh, about three miles from where I'm living now. And it was discovered there about the beginning of the war. And I think some soldiers got it during the war. And I was one of the first people after the war to get it, even before the National Health Service started, which was a year after I was born. And that wonder drug saved my life. And it was called penicillin. 
Was it was it Dr. Jonas Salk? Oh no, no, Jonas Salk was the polio vaccine. No, that's later. I had polio before that came out. There was two or three people who who had different injections for polio, but I proceeded. I had the doctor said he thought what I had was a mild dose of polio, but it didn't leave any anything. You know, it's just like having a bad case of flu. Would you attribute your sense of humor to the fact that you had, you know, a, a hard childhood? With no, no I, I attribute my sense of humor to my father. We would sit around the table. During World War II, uh, while he was in the RAF, officially teaching people how to mend airplanes, he also spent a lot of time in the evening running variety shows, directing plays, etc. Did he play an instrument? Was he a musician as well? Uh, he played a bit. He played, you know, a bit of guitar that he could strum along if there was a sing-along. But, um, I mean, I now know, because I've got recordings of him, that he played wrong chords because he didn't have the musical sophistication to know the right ones. I also have great input of music from my great uncle on my mother's side. Um, there was one, there were seven brothers, one of which ended up, in America, he sang classical music, you know, leader and things like that. And the one here also was a, and he was the one who introduced me when I was five to this wonderful music that I still listen to more than anything else, which is grand opera, but only sung by the best singers like Caruso, Shalyapin, etc. And I have 10,078s here. Uh, did my, you ever have a an old Victrola? Did your parents have a thing where you turn the handle? And... Did I have? I have four of them. Whoa. Now, I have not actually a Victor one. I've got a Graffinola, which is the Columbia equivalent. I have an Edison disc player, because you need a special machine for playing those. And I have three, in, in addition to the gramophones, I have three phonographs. Do you know the difference between the two words? Do what? No, I wouldn't know the difference. Okay, a gramophone plays records, 78, yeah? Right. A phonograph plays cylinders. Oh, okay. So and you, you, I, I so have you about have 200 cylinders as well. Do you, do you have a little dog that looks like Nipper? <laughs> no. That's <laughs> all <laughs> so you need is a little dog. There's one looks in the like market, me. though. I could, I could borrow one if you needed one. Thanks, I'll pass. The, the last time uh, I saw you, you were on a barge out on a, on a ferry crossing the Mersey, uh, and you had oh, written about... Uh, with, with wings back in yeah. 79? Yes. When I was invited to be on that boat, it was that invitation that told me that I would be on the whole tour because... When I went up there the first night in Liverpool, I don't know whether it was arranged by them themselves, I think not, to be fair, uh, or, probably, or possibly a rival company that wanted their group to support Wings rather than me. But when the curtain went up on the first night, there was, a, I mean, the rest of the people were fine, but there was a little group of people near the sound desk that were basically shouting fuck off as soon as the curtain went up. I don't know whether it was inspired by um, Magical, not the Magical Mystery Four, what was that other uh, thing that they had? 
Sergeant Pepper. Um, I don't right. know what got into his mind, but he thought it would be rather fun because they'd been going around for 10 years, Wings, and everybody used to go on tour with a young band which opened for them, and it was always the same. Plus, it meant that during the interval, they had to completely reset the stage and all that sort of palaver. So they wanted something different, and they didn't know what it was going to be, and apparently they had... I know this from, I met Wings drummer. I actually knew one of the guitarists who lived in my street. Uh, and I knew, and I met the um, drummer who came around here. In fact, he just sent me a Christmas card. He's now in New York. Well, which guitarist did you meet? Was it Mac? No. His name, he lives in LA now. His name is Lawrence Juber. Oh, Lawrence Juber. I'm familiar with Lawrence Juber. He's a fantastic Lance, Lance guitar player. We used to live down about 100 yards, and we used to hang out together long before all of this. Um, so I knew him. He was He's properly trained. He went to the Royal College of Music in London. He's you know, a proper musician. Um, the only real rock and roller in the band was, was uh, the guy who had been in... Um, what's his name now? He he came out of another group. Um, in Paul McCartney's In Wings? Yes. I'd have to look it up. I'd have to Google it right now. Anyway, he was in another group before. He was a rock and roller. He was he behaved like a rock and roller, and you didn't know. He got drunk, and he went off with women, and all that sort of stuff. Everybody else was very professional, almost like session musicians. Yeah. Uh, including, of course, and of course, Paul was by this this time married with a with a one-year-old baby, so... He wasn't doing anything. I mean, he probably smoked hash, but he always had done, and uh, it didn't affect anything. And uh, it was all very... The, all the roadies who'd been on tour with everybody had a nickname for the tour, and they called it Mum and Dad and the Kids Go on Holiday. <laughs> and that's what it felt like. Stella and Mary and the baby, um, James, and, you know, Paul and Linda and uh, some other people, you know, and we, we, we did a show every night. And mum and dad would speak words of wisdom, like, let it be. Uh, well, yes. One of, one of the songs I used to like him doing, he used to do that during the set, was one of the songs which I think belonged to the period between the Beatles and Wings. I think he wrote it. And it was a song called Maybe I'm Amazed. Oh, that's a great song. Which I rather liked. And the other guy did, and I, I, why can't I think of his name? Um, it'll come to me in a minute. But he, there were three waltzes in the show. Can you imagine that? There was Paul's Malif Kintyre, which is a waltz. You know Malif Kintyre? No, I don't. It's a big hit. It's an island of Scotland, and it's, that's one song. That, that was a waltz. And then this guy who was the rock and roller, he had a hit way back in the 60s with... <clears throat> If you gotta go, oh, you gotta go now. That's uh, that was wasn't that um, Moody Blues? Yeah, that's it. He was the original singer in the Moody Blues. Oh, I think. Are you thinking of Denny Lane, the guitar player? Denny Lane, Denny Lane. Three of them to begin with: Paul and Linda and Denny. That was the beginning of Wings. Right. Denny was married to an absolutely drop dead gorgeous girl called JoJo. And so why he was going around chatting up women, I do not know. But there you go. She's, <laughs> she's now long gone. She had cancer at some point. Um, 
But I remember that very, very well. So then there was Steve Holly, the drummer, who is still my mate. He sent me a Christmas card. It was Steve Holly, Lawrence Juba, Denny Lane, Paul and Linda. That was the lineup when I was with them. It was the very last tour that they did. The what? other guys had were from previous years. Now, you opened for them as a solo act, but at any yeah. time did they, they ever like include you in a number or did you like say let's all, you I was know. during soundcheck every day soundcheck yeah what soundcheck al- what album was, is that song on no it's, uh, <laughs> soundcheck every day we had a soundcheck and everybody would grab an instrument and usually i would paul would either be played drums a lot of the time he went he liked playing drums but whatever he played and i was usually ended up on the piano so i just joined in and it gave the sound people a chance to do a check on the piano and see that it balanced with everything else. The sound check was really Paul McCartney and the band playing 1950s rock and roll for half an hour. Songs that they didn't do in the show at all. But he right, so the it. audience didn't get to uh, no, catch no, any no, of that. No, they never played that during the show. He, just, he was a 50s rock and roller, Paul. It's funny because I was signed to the same company as the Beatles in the 60s, and uh, the guy's name was Dick James. And we got on like a house on fire. But he would always call me his second Paul McCartney because I had this same ability to write sort of uh, ballads. And uh, But I kept saying to him, I'm not the, your second Paul McCartney. I'm your first Earl Oakin, I would say to him. And that would always make him laugh when I said that. Well, you're, um, you're everybody's first Earl Oakin. Well, yeah. But, uh, now, did, did you <laughs> I mean, st- I'm sure he meant it as a compliment. But I said, no, I don't want to be a second anybody. He meant it as a compliment. I always say to youngsters, don't be a second Frank Sinatra or Elvis Presley or whoever it is. Be the first you. Because you can do you better than anybody else. I'm going to have to use that. I like that. Yeah, so, did you, When you started out, were you writing more serious songs? like, Or, or were you always writing the funny stuff as, at the same time? I still mainly write serious ones. I've only written a few funny ones. You see, I used in the 70s, I was going around folk clubs. And in folk clubs, it was called folk clubs, but it should have been called acoustic music clubs. And right. I started doing the odd funny song, you know, a song with the wrong words, just as a sort of audience grabber, because I noticed that if you just did song, 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 everybody would fall asleep. Whereas if you made them laugh for a little bit and chatted to them and so forth, that's where I learned my audience skills. And then that meant that when the folk circuit just died, and it did suddenly around 1980, 81, I was able to go straight from there into this new nascent, as it was then, comedy circuit that suddenly was born, or quite often in the same pubs. And it would be right. like a month later, I'd be doing a comedy club in the same place I used to sing for comedy, for <laughs> folk audiences. So I went from one to the other. And while I was doing the Edinburgh Festival for 18 years, every year I'd write something funny or did something funny. But it, it was never my main interest. It's just something I always explain it to people like this. When you go to a wine tasting, you go there to taste the wine. But you have bits of cheese in between to refresh your palate. So with me, my music is what I'm about, and the comedy is the piece of cheese. Gotcha. See, it's kind That's of happened to me. I, 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 when I was 
in my teens and early 20s, I was trying to write songs. I was trying to write seriously. And somewhere along the line, a funny song slipped in. And what would happen is I, people would remember me more for my funny songs. So Always. then it got to the point where th that's all they wanted to hear. That's what, right. Exactly the same thing happened to me. What and happens, though, right. is you go from one of your funny songs into one of your serious songs, and the audience starts to laugh because they don't realize this one's a serious yeah. one. And, well, I and had the, one of the most stupid. I mean, I don't mind if people don't like what I do. They've got every right. But when they're supposed to be a critic and they're too stupid to realize what I'm doing, the audience, the rest of the audience what, managed to sort it out, but the critic didn't. I used to do a show at Edinburgh that was in our 60-70% comedy. And then at the end, I would throw in, out of nowhere, a song that wasn't just not funny, but it would make people cry. And it was my version of Cole Porter's Miss Otis Regrets. Wow. And the whole room would go ice cubes. And in his review, he said, I don't know why he did... Miss Otis regrets it wasn't funny at all. Missing the point of the whole thing. Oh, man, yeah. That's exactly what happens. And yeah. sometimes... Now, the other thing, I had a song which I sang for years called Mango, which is sort of suggestive. Come right. and taste my juicy mango. And I wrote that one after coming home, after seeing my favorite singer at the London Palladium, and she sang her big hit, and I thought, I wondered if I could write a song like that. And the song she sang that night, can you guess who it was, first of all? Can you guess who my favorite singer was? Can I guess who your favorite singer was? Yes. American I female. I was going to say Billie Holiday. No, she died long before I was able to do that, and she wasn't my favorite anyway. Um, Etta James? No, she was white, this one. Uh, Barbara Streisand? No, before Barbara Streisand. Well, Her name was Peggy Lee. Oh, is that all there is? But she, the, but the song she was singing was Fever. Never know how much I love you. And I went home and thought, I wonder if I can write a song like that. And I came up with a song in the end called Mango. Here's a sweet and juicy mango. And it's sort of suggestive. And it became my handshake song to the extent that when I ever got a spot on radio or TV, they asked me to do that. And then when I contacted somebody on the radio or BBC, they said, but you only know one song. I said, you keep asking me to do the same song. I know hundreds of songs. Why don't you ask me to do something else? And so I actually stopped singing that for a long time because, because of that. Now I can bring it back in because I've got other songs that people know me for, them, which fulfill the same part of my show the one currently that they know is called my room yeah i saw that uh, video on youtube I, I think that's hysterical well that 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 was in australia uh, next time you're looking at that think of this the program i was on is called the footy show and it's presented you probably see the guy at the beginning who's <clears throat> had his personality clinically removed uh <laughs> he was an ex-rugby player, and I gave him the words to say. I said, please announce me as musical genius and sex symbol. And he did it like he was reading off, you know, which he probably was, an auto cue. 
<laughs> I arrive there, and they usually have guys in sort of T-shirts and jeans that are rugby fans. And he took one look at me, and they decided, oh, God, who sent him? And it's going to be a disaster. And I could see from the way they were talking to me that they were sort of being polite, but doing their best to distance themselves from me so that I could get the hell out of there as soon as possible, right? Right. So he he announces me as I asked, you know, and please welcome musical genius and Erlo, Erlo, can you see? And as you saw from the video, within about 10 seconds of me starting the song, the whole room was an uproar. The girls were screaming and yelling. I mean, just completely no, mental. Were, you, you had a meeting out of your hands, and I don't exactly. know. Did you read any but, of the? Uh, did you read any of the comments people put on that page? They're talking about how wet the seats were. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, um, well, what happened afterwards? When I, as soon as I came off, the entire attitude of everybody behind the camera was completely changed. And instead of being, oh, Mr. Oaken, no, 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 no. and all of a sudden, oh, Earl, um, would you like to do another number in the next segment? And I was actually back again the next year, and they went, oh, Earl's back. You know? So <laughs> it, that, that changed everything. I always use that as my first song when I'm in a place where they don't know me because it's an instant crowd getter. Oh, yeah, but I could see that. When I'm doing a proper show, like I'm doing next week at the Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club, which is where I saw Ella Fitzgerald and people, obviously there um, I keep my comedy to a minimum. I do about one funny song per 45-minute set. So um, Yeah, I find that if I, uh, you know, I go into the funny songs, and then even if I announce I'm about to do a serious song, I'm going to bring the I'm going to bring the mood down laugh. a little bit and they they laugh anyway thinking i'm just saying it i as i as exactly. being ironic uh, the best thing to do i find when you're doing a serious song after that one is to say nothing and just go into the song uh and and the more funny you've been the more you should do a ballad and a quiet serious song without without saying anything by the way the the comedy songwriter that probably influenced me more than anybody else i'm glad to say is still alive he must be in his 80s tom lehrer that's the one we all i mean in my school everybody adored everything that he did he was had a sort of cult following yeah um, no we, i was a big fan yeah i mean he, i think he would uh, be relevant today songs like national brotherhood week absolutely still applies Need the cactus and the thistles. I will watch the guided missiles while the old FBI watches me. I mean, he was running that in the fifties. <laughs> yeah. You know, see, and I think you know they carry on about um, Bob Dylan's wonderful lyrics. I think Tom Tom lyric and outright in sideways, and they have more punch and more validity and and wit and sophistication. I'm not a great Bob Dylan fan in any sense, let alone Leonard Cohen, who I like even less. If you can't sing, don't. That's my advice. <laughs> he had a devout following. and No, I'm sorry. If I, I regard having to listen to him as an ordeal. <laughs> There's so many good singers I can listen to. Why would I want to hear that? But then again, I didn't think much of David Bowie either. Or for that matter, Elton John. Uh, so, um, so you weren't really into the poppy, the pop. Uh... Well, when they were good, 
I thought the Beatles were great. I thought ABBA were great. Uh, I don't know whether he's counted as pop, but I think Stevie Wonder's wonderful. If they're really good, they're really good. Yeah. I'll tell you who I really like. Um, one of the great songwriters, Carol King. Well, it goes without saying. Well, she started out writing for other people. Well, she started off like that, didn't she? Yeah. But she's a great song, and then she started singing herself. And she, with her mate, who I also have got a lot of time, James Taylor, I like him too. They're good songs with interesting chord sequences. I also like somebody else, apparently, who she knew when she was young, Paul Simon. Paul's very prolific, too. I've written 200 songs, something like that. And I wrote a symphony last year. You wrote a symphony last year? Yeah. I thought, well, I had three weeks. Nothing to do. Is it being performed by an orchestra? No, no. I can I can go on Facebook and send you one of the movements performed by my computer, so you can hear how the music goes. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say, if you just send me the sheet music, I would have no idea what to do with it. I I, I learned to play no, by ear. No, this is an MP3 of my computer playing it. Yeah, oh, that would be wonderful. I'll send you the second movement, which is one I like. It's a slow movement. So uh, if if you did get it performed by an orchestra, who would it most likely be, the, the London Philharmonic? No, no, it'd probably be, there are lots and lots of really good amateur orchestras in this country. Any particular one you'd like to see do it? Or well, a particular, there's one, um, I do know the conductor of one of them, so I'm, it might get played by the Ealing Symphony Orchestra. Now, this is a an amateur orchestra, and all the members of it are music teachers, you know, and people like that. So they're proper musicians. And where where is where is this orchestra located? Ealing. You don't know where Ealing, Ealing? is, do you? No. Is that, is that... Ealing is... Uh, I, I live in West London in Notting Hill. They're about five miles west of me. Okay, so Ealing is part of uh, the UK? It's part or, of London. Part of London. Okay, and, and and what's the name of the conductor? Oh, I can't remember his name. Sorry. I'll, I'll try and find it for you. It's not, he's not famous or anything. But, uh, oh, I just thought maybe if you had new offhand, I would just give, give a... How do you spell Ealing? E-A-L-I-N-G. E-A-L-I-N-G. I'm doing this right now. Ealing, London. Okay, was it Ealing Orchestra? It's Ealing Symphony Orchestra. Every now and then they have concerts, and he was talking about the possibility of having a concert where he would play parts, if not all, of compositions written by unknown composers who've never been played and have and this, that as an actual concert. Uh, I've got to write to him now that Christmas is over and we're starting again. I ought to... I, I'm oh, oh, here it is. Ealing Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. Fine music in your neighborhood. The ESO. Okay. Malcolm Arnold Concerto for Two Violins. I'm trying to... Let's see the voice extension numbers. Page. Malcolm Arnold was a, was a British composer. From the 30s and 40s, I think. Look, uh, ESO, Independent Voluntary Orchestra, based in West London. I was hoping that the site would have uh, here a conductor. Conductor is John Gibbons. That is the one. Okay, John, this is Halloran Cohen in the United States. I'm talking to Earl Oaken, and he's just written a symphony. John Gibbons, if you're listening, it would behoove you to get a hold of Earl and have your orchestra. Do this symphony. That's all I'm well, saying. I'm already a, in touch with him, but uh, <laughs> oh, okay. 
So now people in the United States are looking forward to hearing this. So well, it, there you go. It go it's going to go worldwide now. Well, actually, I have a friend in New York who is a proper concert pianist. He also does comedy, and he thinks my music is. In fact, it's his fault that I wrote the thing because it was. He'd heard a string quartet that I once wrote and said, oh, you know, somebody might sponsor you to write a symphony. And I don't know what made me do it, but about a month later, I wrote the symphony just for fun. His name is Mitchell Zeidwig, Z-E-I-D-W-I-G. He lives in New Jersey across the river from New York. So he's somebody who's also been trying to get people to take notice of my classical music, such as it is. It's not my main thing. Uh, in the meantime, I still write, I still record a mixture of my own songs and songs from a mixture of the Great American and the Great Brazilian songbook. I found this wonderful little studio about 200 yards from my house, which is half the price of the one I was using before, wow. so I can actually afford it. And uh, the good engineer? Wonderful. I write the arrangements on my computer. And um, he makes them sound good by doing things which I can't do because partly because as a result of all those illnesses I had when I was young, I am deaf completely in one ear. So I can't hear stereo, which is just as well I collect 78s, really. Because <laughs> everything in my, in my world is mono. I can hear everything. I just don't know where just, it is. Right, just not in stereo. Perception yeah, if you is, call uh, me in the street, I'd have to spin round to see where you were because I wouldn't know. I'd hear it, but I wouldn't know whether you were on my left or my right or behind me. I'd have to see you. You've done a lot of traveling and probably have some good stories. So I was wondering uh, if I could just get one, something unique that happened to you out there and during your travels. Well, the country in which most things happened is Ireland particularly Ireland of the 1980s oh god what can I say about Ireland <laughs> it's like the 20th century hadn't happened yet uh -oh. I mean to this day they've got no trains there or they did have trains and they took the tracks out I mean they're mental um, let me give you an example oh, I, it's the food I mean people used to make fun of English food which was fair enough, it was terrible years ago, but it was called on blur compared to what you got in Ireland. So I'll give you two food stories. Okay, because a musician has to eat. Yes. <laughs> in those days, wherever you went, all you could get anywhere was egg, bacon, sausage, I mean, like, like you know, an English breakfast, okay? But at lunchtime, tea time, supper, that's all they had. You ask for anything else, they looked at you as if you something wrong with you. So right. when I got to Cork, which is a town which had, which still has uh, a jazz festival, and I was sitting there, and I my eyes caught that they had a pizza restaurant. Now I'm not a pizza freak by any means, but just to get away from egg, bacon, and sausage, wonderful. So. I went in and I ordered a pizza and it arrived and it was circular and it was red and yellow. It sort of looked vaguely like a pizza. And I stuck my fork in it. Something was wrong. So I withdrew the fork and I levered up the edge of the topping and the whole topping came up 
in one piece like a frisbee. <laughs> and underneath were three pieces of toast cut into a circle. Oh, man. So what they'd actually given me was sort of a Welsh rabbit. It's sort of um, cheese and a, a bit of tomato on toast. But, but circular, so they called it a pizza. So I got the waiter over and I said, what's this? He said, well, he says, it's only bread after all, isn't it? <laughs> he couldn't see that there was any difference between cheese and tomato on toast and a pizza. Oh, man. They okay, would hang, wouldn't they hang him in Italy for that? Yeah, but this is Ireland in the 1980s. And it's not, it's not that they were trying to dupe me. They literally couldn't see the difference. He, he had no idea what I was complaining about. Now, if you think that was just an ordinary little restaurant, that Sunday, all the people in the jazz festival had a big meal in their top four-star hotel, which was called Jury's. It still is there, J-U-R-Y. Uh, amongst the people there, I, who was about three seats away from me, was Lionel Hampton, who was then getting on for 90. So everybody was there. And I noticed on the menu that they had roast pork and three vegetables. So again, I thought, great, you know, no, no egg, bacon and sausage, roast pork, Sunday lunch, great, you see. Anyway, the roast pork arrived and it was fine, apple sauce on the side. And then the three vegetables. Okay, this is Ireland. So I'll let you guess what the three vegetables were. Um, Brussels sprouts, peas and carrots? See, you're, yeah, you're not thinking like an Irishman of the 1980s. No, I guess I'm not. Okay, these were the three vegetables. Roast potatoes. Yeah? Okay. Mashed potatoes and chips. <laughs> oh, that's... that's a... And again, it's no good saying to them, where are the three? He said, there they are. There, there, there they are, the three vegetables. See, I wasn't thinking like that because I, I, I don't think, I mean, yeah, they're vegetables, but it's like all, it's 100% starch. Well, they're vegetables. I mean, you know, potatoes are vegetables. But, but it's three different kinds I mean, of the same vegetables. The, the, just... I, I sort of assumed there might be three different vegetables, but apparently not. <laughs> oh, that, that's, that's, those are the sort of things that happened to me in Ireland. Now, by contrast, I was in Zambia literally about three months ago. Zambia, which used to be called Northern Rhodesia, okay? Uh-huh. Uh, I got the gigs through an old friend from years ago who used to do folk clubs in Belgium in the 70s and 80s, and he lives there now, and would I like to come out? Yes. Well, the first gig was the, he got me was one that he didn't know about. He knew about all the others who organized it, but this was like a bonus gig at the beginning, and it ticked every box that you don't want ticked. First of all, they hadn't advertised it, so nobody bought any tickets. It was in a sports bar. It was supposed to be a bowling club, but I could see from the bowling green that it was colored brown and there were weeds and nobody had used it in living memory. But it was really the sports bar. So nobody had actually bought tickets. So anybody who was in there was going to get music, which they hadn't really been interested in. Right, so there, it's basically Oakland. it's a sports bar, and it wasn't promoted, and they're there primarily to watch rugby and football on TV. 
Right, or but something. it's worse than that because they promised him that they had a PA, right? When we got there, my friend was offered a cordless microphone without any batteries in it. And they didn't seem to know that there was supposed to be an amplifier to it to make it work. <laughs> oh, poor guy. And then they said, and he said, well, where's the abbot? Oh, maybe that's that thing in the cupboard. So it, indeed it was, and they didn't know what to do with it. And they didn't have any mic stands. And it, so the whole thing happened up four hours after the time it was supposed to be happening. Nobody seemed to care. And uh, finally, and there was only one mic stand, they managed to drive around and get one, so I couldn't play my guitar because there wasn't a second mic stand. So I did everything at the keyboard, which luckily my friend had brought along. So we struggled through, nobody was really interested. But the thing that I will mainly remember is this. Zambia is obviously a, mainly a black people country, but they have no ill feeling towards white people and in fact it's, it's a bit old-fashioned that all the girls there don't like having african hair and they all wear straight hair wigs right because they think they look better that way and they've all been given themselves english names you know like dorothy and you know things like that not they, they, instead of their real names you know so they're all One's called Sarah and the other one called Sophia and all this stuff. Okay, so I'm talking to this 20, I don't know what she was, 22, 23-year-old girl, you know, waiting for the microphone stands to turn up and the show to begin. And uh -huh. she took a shine to me, you see. Uh -huh. And suddenly in the conversation, she said, and I quote her words, we could make a baby, she said to me. And I said, my dear, I'm not just old enough to be your father. I'm old enough to be your grandfather. And then he said, yes, but you're still fine. So oh. those are things you remember. I managed to escape with my virtue intact, but it's something to remember. I mean, all sorts of things happened to me. I've written my autobiography, and I've got a whole section for things happening to me in different countries because something happens to me always sooner or later but you've had your share of groupies i'm sure even no. those uh the women in the audience in the video in australia when you were doing my room i never met they, any of them they became instant groupies whether you there know you it go, or not but unfortunately what you really want is a gropey a gropey um, <laughs> but i i never seem to have anything but women who like me for my music and for no other reason I didn't have people trying to sleep with me or invading my hotel room or anything like that. No, never, not once. Well, in the end, your music is your legacy, so you want to be known for that. Yes, but in the meantime, it wouldn't be too bad to enjoy some of that horizontal entertainment as well. But it doesn't happen to me. It never has done. It probably won't do now because I'm too old. Although, there you go, Zambia, only three months ago, so you never know. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. See, yeah, you, have, you um, still have a, somebody who might be willing to uh, carry your baby for you. <laughs> there you go. I'm not wrinkled. I can't. You know how when people get old, you can see the veins in the back of the hand like it's a roadmap? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. No roadmap? I can't even see. I must have veins. I can't see them. Um, well, don't complain, so Earl. No, I'm not complaining. <laughs> so, I mean, this shows that 
you know, I don't, I, I had four people guess me last week at being in my 50s, and I'm going to be 72 at the end of this month. By the way, I, I don't know whether I mentioned this, I was born on the 150th anniversary to the day of the birth of another songwriter who also wore glasses. And his name was Franz Schubert. And uh, when he was my age, he'd been dead for 38 years. Interestingly, recently when I did a, a, a tour of little Tourette, shall we say, of um, Austria or Vienna, one of the guys who ran one of the venues is an amateur saxophone player. And his name is Franz Schubert. So I can actually say that I've performed with Franz Schubert. I used to go, well, I still do occasionally, to a sort of a jazz dive. It's got a bit posh now, but when it started out, the original place was a tiny little rickety place, you know, where musicians would go after their gigs at night. And there was a band called Rocket 88. You can look it up. I'm sure they'll be online somewhere. Yeah, Rocket I know there, there was a nightclub in L.A. called Rocket 88. I guess that, that's what they named it after. Maybe. At Rocket 88, it was a, a band of people that had a complete double lineup because half of the members of the band were very famous. But because they belonged to other bands, they were sometimes not available because they had to go on tour. Um, for instance, the drummer was the drummer of the Rolling Stones, and he wasn't always available. Charlie Watts. Yeah, Charlie Watts. Yeah, he was the drummer. And and again, I can't remember his name, but the the main bass player was the bass player in a, in a group called Cream. Uh, Jack Bruce. Jack Bruce, that's the one. So Jack Bruce and a couple of the others, a saxophone player and somebody else. In fact, you know, it's just the two of them. They they'd left the Half Moon Putney or wherever it was that they were playing, and they come about two miles to the six oh six hangout afterwards, and they were for, arrived straight away, and they were both completely drunk out of their heads, and they were both trying to solo on a blues at the same time. Jack Bruce was trying to solo on down. the bass, and and uh... yeah, and the other guy on tenor sax, <clears throat> and they were both trying to solo. And, of course, nobody was putting down the chords for them to solo around. Right. So I thought, oh, for fuck's sake. So I got up, and I and I just sat at the piano and dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. So they had something to play against, you know? Right. So, yeah, you so gave I the... can say I played piano with Jack Bruce. He won't remember this because he was completely off his head on alcohol. He was pissed. Um, but I did, in fact, play piano with Jack Bruce. That's very cool. Now, the only thing that would make that story even worse is if, while Jack Bruce and the other guy were trying to solo at the same time, if <clears throat> if Charlie Watts was doing a drum solo too. Oh, they they couldn't have drums down there at that time because, although it was made legal later, at that time it was still in a legal club and they hadn't registered it, and so they had to keep very quiet at night, no drums. Plus, there wasn't any room for drums. It was tiny. I think the whole place would have held about... 20 or 30 people. Oh, one of the lovely stories is when it first started out, before my time, the guy who started it was a sort of minor crook, not dangerous or anything, but, you know, definitely on the wrong side of the law. And he started this club and apparently discovered that there was a brick wall between where we were in the basement and next door's basement. Next door wasn't a bank, was it? No, no, I don't know what it was. 
but they saw that there was nothing happening in the basement next door. So he thought, carefully not knocking down anything that was weight-bearing, they knocked down the brickwork in between the two basements. And for a year, they ran it double the size. They had little tablecloths and, and the Italian wine bottles with candles in it. I mean, it was a complete death trap, if there had ever been a fire. There was actually an open fire with a fire burning, you know, oh, coal and everything. And the so pe- anyway, the, it ran like that. It's before my time, remember. The guy who owned the place next door, he didn't mind? No, he knew nothing about it. You mean he never went down in his basement well, to discover that there's the a whole underground? One day, about a year later, it was very, very cold. Uh-huh. And the guy who lived next door uh, wanted to put on a kerosene heater. And he thought, I think I've got some kerosene in the basement. <laughs> so, so about one o'clock at night or two, whenever it was, this guy comes down in his dressing room, unlocks the door to the basement, opens it to find a jazz club in his basement. <laughs> Uh, that would be would have been great to, if somebody was filming the look on his face when when I know. that happened. I mean, I had it been me, I'd have said, "Fine, give me some money, you can carry on doing it." Right. But he said no, and he they had it bricked up again, and it was stopped. But I just think that was so funny. I wonder if um, they had just asked him nicely in the beginning if it could have just been. Well, there been you go. Gone. Well, what happened? It's funny you say that because when my friend who still runs the six hundred six finally took it over, uh, he's a jazz musician himself. And it was still illegal, and they got raided by the police, you see. And the police went down there, and they said, well, you're just serving food and wine. And he said, yeah, well, see, why don't you just apply for a license? And so they did. <laughs> and they go. weren't doing anything wrong. They weren't selling drugs or doing anything illicit. Right. They Sometimes just hadn't I... filled out the form saying, can we have a jazz club here? It seems like people so they, enjoy it more if they think they're doing, they're getting away with something rather might, yeah. than just well, ask. The thing is, until that time, they couldn't book anybody. They couldn't advertise it. It was a place that people would come down at night from their other gigs. There was a piano there, no drums, and people would just start sitting in with one another, and you'd have all sorts of interesting combinations, a rock and roller with a trad jazz musician or or a way out modern jazz musician and somebody who played New Orleans and they had to find somebody to play together. I thought that was really very interesting. And after that, then it got boring because then it became like an ordinary jazz club with hired bands and... Right, right. So, so basically when it was clandestine, it was more interesting. When it, when they were trying to keep it like a secret, that made it more appealing to, yeah, well, to be a, there. It was a place where musicians went. Now, it still exists, but now musicians are booked, and the people who go there aren't musicians. They're people who go to listen to music right, and right, have a meal. Right, the whole vibe is gone. Yeah, for me it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite pleasant, don't get me wrong. It's very nice, but it was very special. It was a place for musos to go, and 90% of the people down there were musicians of one sort or another. So it was, we're talking about the 70s now, when I was still a schoolmaster, so I'd go down there at night, you know. I didn't know you were a schoolmaster. Oh, yeah, I was a deputy headmaster before, when I got chosen to go on the Wings tour, that's what helped me give up that horrible life. Uh, (laughs) 
Did were were you a music teacher at uh, some point? Well, I taught primary school, so music came into it. But it, you know, if I could, if they left me able to read and write, I felt I'd done my job. Right, close enough. I still see them because I, I taught around this area. They're now in their fifties, and it's I know it that they they're, they're now like fifty five, sixty years old. Right. And if I see them in the street, they still call me sir, so I know that they were in my class. <laughs> It's so That's silly. Funny. Oh, hello, sir. Hello. You know, to so, them, I'll always be sir. Well, because I was their teacher when when they were eight years old. Well, they should respect you after all this. All <laughs> after all you've done for them, Ro. Now, do you want to talk a little bit about your podcast and and what you're doing? I know you were saying uh, not too many gigs this this year, at this time of year. It, it was a great. Last month was terrible. I had Christmas when you expect to get corporates and private parties. I had one comedy club at the beginning on the 1st, and I had one what turned out to be a really nice jazz gig on the 23rd. That was it, the whole month. It's funny how that works out, but yeah, sometimes just when you think, this is on, the phone's going to start ringing off the hook, I better make myself available, and you do, and they don't. Well, the the very lucky thing for me was this, that the the jazz gig, which in the past, it's, it's a sort of, percentage gigs so the more people you get the more money you get in the past i don't think i've ever sold more than 20 30 tickets so i was expecting to earn i don't know two or three hundred pounds maybe and for some unknown reason it sold out which helped the month no end and then that worried me because having done that i've got a gig coming up at our top jazz club on the 20th which is you know a few days away from now Sunday coming and I thought oh god and that means nobody will come to that well that sold out about a week ago so I'm on a bit of a roll at the moment and then next month is the most I'm one of those weird months I have no idea where they found me why they found me but all of a sudden I get an email would I like to do a jazz concert in Lithuania so I'm doing two jazz concerts in February I'm having to fly out there, which I don't like doing, not because I don't like flying, but because I hate airports. I really hate airports. Particularly now they're making a, they're making a whole issue of guitars as if it's some major problem. Never was before, but all of a sudden it is. So I've asked them to get me a, a nylon string guitar at that end, so I'll be playing their guitar. Normally these days when I go to Belgium or France or Germany, even to Austria, I go by train. It's so much easier. See, from here to, to Paris or Brussels is two hours by train. I'll put a link to your, your show. In my show notes, I'll put a link to the page where, you're, where you list on your website. You've got your gigs. And also, you want to talk a little bit about the podcast, yeah, the, the gramophone? Podcast. Uh, that, that's that's uh, fantastic. The I don't podcast think- is very simple. As you know, I've been collecting 78 since forever. I was five or six years old when I started collecting, and now I'm running out of shelf space. They're, they're everywhere. And it's amazing how many people think, I mean, they know intellectually that it didn't start then, but if you ask them about music, it's as if music started with Elvis Presley. The number of people who've not actually heard of Bing Crosby, unless you really, you know. Right, and some of your 78s even predate him by years. Huh? 
I said some of your 78s predate oh, Bing yeah. Crosby but himself I'm, I'm by many years. Too. So yeah. I, I put, uh, I, I mean, some of my, uh, I, I play cylinders, which were made in the 1890s. But most of the stuff I play is between 1900 and 1960 and tends to be a little bit later. So it tends to be between 1920 and 1950, uh, except for the opera, which the greatest singers were before World War One. And in the normal show, there'll be two operatic or similar classical singers. There'll be two jazz or dance band tracks and two vaudeville or music hall or variety, you know, comedy type things. So that you've got a variety within the show. And they're always, and I try never to play the same track twice. I may make a mistake one day, but that's my aim. Because I've got enough of them. So I've got about 118 shows up there. So multiplied by six. I've played something like 700 tracks in the last year or two. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, on this last episode, you played a, your first track was by Franz Schubert, who you share your birthday with. Yeah, well, that's why I did it. Oh, that um, reminds me. There is a movie. I don't know if when I talked to you last time I brought this up. There's a movie with... The, t- the actor's name is Tim Roth, uh, and it's called The Legend of 1900. Have you heard of it? No. It's about a baby who was born on a ship on New Year's Eve in the year 1900. Okay. And the crew down in the bowels of the ship raised him, and they named him 1900 because that the theory was born. Mm-hmm. And 1900... As a young boy, discovered the baby grand piano in the ballroom, and he becomes like a virtuoso. He teaches himself to play, mm-hmm. and he never leaves the ship. But there's a scene where he has a piano playoff, like a du- dueling pianos with uh, Jelly yeah. Jelly Roll Morton. Huh. And the scene is worth the price of the entire movie. I won't the say anything. The interesting thing about Jerry Roll Morton, by the way, is he was very bravado, and I'm the king, and I'm the best, and I'm all this stuff. Right, yeah. right. But in private, there's a letter he wrote which said that he left New Orleans because he wasn't as good as the other pianists, whereas he could be the number one guy outside New Orleans because he was the only one who could do that sort of stuff. And he could be, as, as it were, a big fish in a small pond. Say, I am jazz. I invented this stuff. But he said in real life that the other pianists were better than he was. The other thing in, in New Orleans at that time was that most of the pianists were women. And that somehow if you played the piano, you weren't a real man. A real man played the guitar. So there was what? all that going on as well. I don't know why that should be, but... Notice that Louis Armstrong's first pianist was a woman. Lil Armstrong was a female, obviously. See, now um, my little brother, he would say a real man doesn't play the piano or the guitar. He plays football. He got uh, the sports gene. I got the music gene. I'm sure you can relate. When you say football, do you mean American football? Yeah, American football. Yeah. But basically I'm saying sports. Football. It's a metaphor for, for sports in general. Yeah. I, I was never interested in sport. I what I was good at, the one sport that I was quite good at was badminton. Yeah, yeah. see, I like that. Because I'm, I'm fast. The, the lighter sport. 
No, but I'm fast. There was somebody who was a rugby player, our gym teacher, and he thought it was like, oh, anybody can do that. And I almost gave him a heart attack. I I ran him. I ran him ragged. He couldn't get the shuttlecock back to me, and I was fast. It's it's not the light sport that people think it is. Uh, that's I don't know. I haven't played in years, but I probably could if I had to. But um, how well I don't know. The only sport that I watch regularly, you will not be watching. I know. What would that be? Test match cricket. Uh yeah, probably not. There are some teams in New York State, mainly run by West Indians who've moved there. It's I was <laughs> trying to explain it to an American audience, and I remember him saying to me, "So you're playing for five days." six hours each day and sometimes you don't finish what the fuck and it was so funny he, he couldn't he just couldn't hold the concept in his mind at all it's got the same frisson as baseball but it's much more subtle is baseball big in England no I don't think so um, because you've got cricket Right, uh, right. The big difference between baseball and cricket is, of course, because the ball hits the ground before it hits the batsman. And the bat used is a great flat thing. But in baseball, you expect the pitcher to get the batter out. And that if you score a run, it's a big deal. Yeah? Well, of course in it's a big deal. In cricket, you expect the batsman to make a lot of runs. And to get the batsman out is a big deal. I think the world record ever stands at something like one batsman in one inning scored 460-something runs, and it took him the best part of two days to do it. So he's facing balls for a total of 10 hours. Every two hours you have a break, you, know, you have lunch, you have I wouldn't even have the stamina to watch that, let alone play that. Oh, it's, but it's, it's absolutely riveting when it works. And sometimes the most exciting time is that no runs are being scored. Nobody's got out. But because of the score and the state of the game, if one of those two things happen, you know, anything could be. And so you're waiting. It's a bit like watching a Hitchcock film. You're waiting for that thing to happen, you know, and you don't know what it is. Uh, mm-hmm. No, they're most, most exciting watching. There can be days which are boring and nothing's happening and it's a dead game. But when it works, oh boy. <laughs> and as you probably know, it's an absolute religion in in India. No kidding. Cricket. Who'd have thought? What's the one with the the horse polo? polo? Oh, yeah, that's for rich people. Oh, okay. Is polo like cricket for rich people? No. It's like hockey for rich people. Right, okay. Because you're on a horse. Yeah, but hockey's not a horse. Hockey's on skates. That's ice hockey. Ice hockey, yeah. about field hockey. Oh, oh, oh. Original hockey. I didn't even think about that. When I think hockey, Um, I live in Philadelphia. When you say hockey, they're thinking of flyers and blades on your shoes. Now, hockey is played like football on a field, and um, it's it's an Olympian sport. You can watch it played. But so if, if you put the same people on horses and get them to do the same thing with a mallet and a ball, that's sort of what polo is. 
I believe it's funny. It. Even when we talk sports, we have two different languages in, in sports. I know. I know. Um, what I remember when I was in New York once, somebody from Liverpool who was obviously being very sarcastic, and I knew what was going on, but the guy didn't realize he was, they were taking the piss. Um, they rang up a sports program, and they, as if they were asking a real question, they said, "So, um, so like, I'd like to know why, why is it called the World Series when there's only America in it?" You see. That's something to think about. I always thought about that. Why do they call it the World Series? It's not international. And so the number of things I saw in America, where uh, on a restaurant they would say, "Our world famous pizzas" or whatever it was, bologna. They tend to get carried away with the hype here. World famous, world famous in as in the nearest five blocks. Years ago, I decided I used, I was having in the seventies when I was doing folk clubs. I got to be quite popular in the Half Moon Putney, where, by some coincidence, I'm about to return again forty years later. I haven't performed there since forever, but at that time I was sort of you know getting a name in, in the on the folk world in the seventies, and somebody interviewed me and I said yes, I'm world famous in Putney, and they used that as the that's the headline. <laughs> World famous in Putney. Somebody yeah. has to be. Well, exactly. That's what I, and I thought it ought to be me. So EarlOaken.net is where we find your stuff. And the podcast? Uh, yeah, it's at EarlOaken.blogspot.com. So that's where they can find your show. Yes. It might be easier for them to remember. Just Google Earl Oaken's gramophone show. Or on the website, it's called Earl Oaken's Amazing Gramophone Show. By the way, the amazing was supposed to refer to the gramophone, not to me. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention to you before I forget is this. I have made a couple of discoveries over the last two or three years. I've heard the best. I've heard Peggy Lee. I heard Ella Fitzgerald. I met Bing Crosby, etc., etc., so I'm difficult to impress. I met a young man, not quite as young as I thought he was. I think he's about 43 now. But I met him about five years ago in a sort of watering hole in a basement somewhere in Soho here. And he was he sang a song with a pianist. And I stopped what I was doing and turned around and I thought, he's good. Who is he? And then he told me what his name was. And as soon as I heard the surname, it all made sense. Oh. And you can see him on YouTube. His name is James Torme. Oh, really? I, I, I'm going to guess it's Mel something or other. Nephew, Mel son. Torme, yes. But this is James Torme, his son. His James, youngest son. James Torme, is young, it's his youngest son. Okay, I'm writing it down. And uh, we've become great friends. We're mutual fans. He sings my songs. He he was the guest in my Christmas show, the one I told you that sold out, and we both sang our own versions of his father's song, the one that is the best Christmas song ever written. I agree. You know the one I mean. Yeah, chestnuts roasting. There is one other great one we I sang there, which apparently Mel loved, and it's also a great song. And it goes, it's the only one not written by a Jew, funny enough. <laughs> <laughs> It goes, 
Have yourself a merry little Christmas. And an, an actual Christian wrote that one. Yes. Who the uh, fuck? Uh, not only a Christian, <laughs> but some weird thing. He was seven. I think he was a Seventh Day Adventist or one of those peculiar things. But he wrote all the songs for that film, which is called "Meet Me in St. Louis." So, um, so yeah, the, those two are both uh, right up there among. Well, the, the Mel Torme uh, Christmas song is the epitome. It's the it's the Christmas song. It's and it. the the most famous one though was written by somebody who, like you, started his career as a singing waiter. Oh, really? And the singing waiter in question was called Irving Berlin. So Irving Berlin was waiting tables and uh, serenading his yeah. customers just like me, huh? Back around 1910, 1915. You know, I wrote a Christmas song myself, Earl. Here on Christmas morning, I wake up... <laughs> All right, I'm going to let you go. So gonna... <laughs> <laughs> just like your speaking voice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just sped it up anyway, a little night, bit. Anyway, night-night. All right, good night.
this gypsy life just suits me fine Like autumn leaves or summer wine Cause when I hold your hand in mine I know I'm home, my son